You see, fortunately, I'm, uh, I'm squashed a bit of a thank you. Very warm welcome, church family, to this morning's worship service. We're going to start by reading Psalm 148 together. It will come up the screen. Follow with me as we read. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, his majesty is above earth and heaven, he has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. All creatures of our God and King, let's stand and worship Him. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. We're not going to read this. Um, thanks, Alan. You can just um, skip over to the slide. We don't have time this morning to read the section in advance, uh, but we are going to read it as we work our way through it this morning. So please do keep your Bibles open before you. Uh, if you don't have your Bible when you come to church, why have you come to church? You haven't come to listen to me speak. You've come to hear God speak to you, hopefully through me, but from his word. So please bring your Bibles to church. Please read uh, as I read the scriptures, as we work our way through um, them, that we keep God's word always uh, before us. And so do that this morning because we're not going to have the, the verses up on the screen this morning. So today is the 4th of December. Uh, and although it's not quite yet the end of the year, and to my knowledge, it's not yet the end of the world, uh, today is, however, the day in which we reach the end of our series in the book of Revelation. Um, maybe I'll do one more in January just to try and wrap up some loose ends. I'm not sure yet. Depends how many emails I get over my holiday period. Um, but as for our exposition, uh, as far as the book goes, today is the end. And, and as I've been preparing this week, uh, it's been a somewhat bittersweet uh, experience. Because I, I started the series at the beginning of the year with much fear and trepidation. But I've grown to love the book of Revelation as part of the Bible as part of God's very word, his precious word to us as his people, those living between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've grown to see Revelation is not just another book of the Bible, uh, which I've got to know a little bit better, and I hope that's true for you too, but a book of the Bible which really ties all of Scripture together. It reveals to us from Genesis all the way to the very end that we have one God. We have one God who is sovereignly working throughout history to execute his one plan of redemption, to save one people for himself, to be united as one bride to his only begotten son, so that forever into eternity all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth will resound to the praise and the glory of the triune God. And so even if you have not agreed with my interpretation of the book along the way, uh, my prayer is that you too would have come to see without a shadow of a doubt that the lamb wins, 
that the Lamb is all the glory. And we who are his people, we who have his name written on our foreheads, we who have our names written in the Lamb's book of life, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so yes, even if your interpretation is different, but it gets you to that same conclusion, then we can still be friends. But as we draw our series to a close today, the passage before us is very different uh, from what has has transpired over the last 18 chapters or so, and it really takes us back to the very beginning. As Jesus came to John in John chapter 1 to introduce what this book was about, to introduce what was about to be revealed. Let me remind you how Revelation began. Chapter 1 verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made known he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then what followed? What followed was a rapid pace of seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and then starting from chapter 4 all the way through to the beginning of chapter 22, we've had this series of seven parallel visions, each vision describing to us the events of world history between the, the first and the second coming of, of Jesus Christ from God's perspective. Each vision was painted in bold and bright colors. Each vision was intended to comfort and encourage God's people who were living and are living through this period of the last days. For us to know without any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is in control, that the victory has already been secured, the devil and his beasts, yes, although active, they bound. Although angry are limited, although powerful are ultimately defeated, and in the end, they and all those who follow them will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. And then the lamb will return and will be united to his perfected bride, the people of God, the true Israel of God, who is the church of Jesus Christ. And then he will make all things new. Well, the visions have now ended and John now returns, in a sense, to where it all began, back down to earth, as it were. Remember we said last time uh, that there is no such thing as a Christian who is too heavenly-minded to be of no earthly good. And the last chapter of Revelation reminds us that the purpose of this book that we've spent a year studying is not to cause us as Christians to live with our heads in the clouds, but it's intended to be a revelation of God's purposes across all of history so that we will live in the here and the now with lives of great earthly good. That our lives will be lived with a clear understanding of God's sovereign purposes, even through suffering, even in the face of persecution and hardship, that we will live as those who daily conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony. And so I have three points which flow from this passage today. Two are going to be brief and, and one will take up a little bit more uh, of our time. So let me start with the two brief points which kind of form a bookend to this last section. And although much more could be said, uh, we won't have time for that today. But let's start in the first place then with God's revelation is trustworthy in verse 6. I think one of the dangers that we have as modern Christians is that we live in a day and age of incredible movie productions and theatrical performances. Hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent every year on the most incredible special effects that make even the most far-fetched, ridiculous science fiction movie stories seem so amazingly real and lifelike. So whether it's Lord of the Rings or Avatar or Star Wars or the, the Marvel movies, no matter how good such a production is, we leave the movie knowing that it was all make-believe. It's just fantasy. 
But I think the danger for many of us today is that we've spent this whole year in the book of Revelation, in the the realm of the mysterious and the symbolic and the fantastical beasts and, and monsters all the scenes of angels and thrones and, and large crowds gathered worshiping. We've seen battles and, and cosmic disintegration. We've seen dragons and prostitutes, cities and celebrations. And, and we may be tempted to come to the end of the book of Revelation and to walk away and think that was an amazing story. But it's got nothing to do with the real world. Now, if that is perhaps even partly your attitude to the book of Revelation, then you are not only severely mistaken, but you are in actual fact in grave danger of missing the entire point of this book, but more seriously, actually falling prey to the deception of the dragon described in this book. So John ends his record of the visions with with one of the seven angels saying to him in chapter 22, verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And then in in verse 8, John adds, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. What we have here is really the biblical principle of a matter of truth being established by the, the combined testimony of two or three witnesses. We have the angel, we have the very words of God himself, and we have John's own testimony. The point is that God's revelation is trustworthy. I showed you last time in chapter 21 that 21 bears a striking parallel with Genesis 1 to 3, and we saw that everything that went wrong in Genesis 1 to 3 was reversed in Revelation chapter 21. And we see that again here in verse 6. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, We see that the first time that Satan speaks in the Garden of Eden, we read that he twisted and he undermined the truthfulness of the Word of God. The whole story of the fall of humanity began with Satan saying, did God really say? That cast Adam and Eve and this world into sin and the curse, and it started with Satan undermining the truth and the trustworthiness of God's word. And and in one sense, the whole storyline of the Bible, the whole history of the world could be described as the battle for truth. A battle which Satan as the deceiver continues to wage against Christians even today. And so John ends his vision with this clarion call for truth. These words are trustworthy and true. Notice that this statement does not simply apply to the book of Revelation. It applies to all of Scripture as the angel makes clear that the same God who reveals these things, this vision to John, he's the same God, verse 7, who spoke through the prophets of God in Scripture. That reminds us of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, where Peter says, We have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as we reflect reflect on all that, that John has told us in this vision, even though much of this book has been highly symbolical, difficult to understand, John wants us to know for certain that this is not a fantasy story that we can simply ignore as we carry on in the real world. No, this is the revelation of God himself. It is trustworthy. It is true. And in it, God has revealed what must take place, what soon will take place. There is no escaping the reality of this revelation. 
But if, if doubting the reality of God's word is, is one of the dangers we face in our modern world, another danger must certainly be the increasing tendency in the world today to imply, well, you know, while the Bible may be the truth of God for you as Christians, it's certainly not complete. It's not absolute. It cannot be binding in any authoritative way over our lives. And so in the second place, I want us to see that God's revelation is complete. Move down to verses 18 and 19. Let's just jump to the, the end of what John says. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So God's revelation is not only trustworthy and true, but it is complete. This is what theologians have referred to as the sufficiency of Scripture. One definition says, Scripture is sufficient in that it is the only inspired inerrant and therefore final authority for Christians for faith and godliness with all other authorities being subservient to scripture. Now while I doubt that any of us here today would be quick to claim that God's word is, is in any way lacking and we would certainly, I hope, never rip any pages out of our Bibles because we think that they contain error, isn't that perhaps practically, what we do. So let me ask you a few questions to probe this. When last have you read through the whole Bible? All of it. When last have you studied Lamentations, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Philemon, Jude? When you did perhaps read through Leviticus or Chronicles and you encountered those long lists of names or those chapters of intricate details of temple regulations and ceremonies, did you just skip over them? When you read difficult passages in Romans or Ephesians or, or you bump your head against conflicting views in Corinthians or James, do you just move on and give no real thought to find out what those passages really mean? You see, although none of us, I hope, would take a black marker to the text of Scripture, and we would certainly never tear any pages out of our Bible, have we not practically done that in never opening certain books of the Bible, simply ignoring passages which are difficult to understand or don't seem to fit with our modern views. And while none of us would ever think of adding anything to the Bible, isn't that again practically what we do? when we spend hours every day listening to YouTube psychologists tell us how to fix the problems of the heart, when we force the teaching of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 into the mold of evolutionary theory, or when we rationalize away the teaching of the Bible on homosexuality and gender. John's vision ends with a very serious warning for each one of us today. God's word is trustworthy and true, and God's word is complete. If you add to it, God will add to you the plagues described in this book. And if you subtract from it, God will take away your share in the eternal life described in it. If you are playing games with God's word today, either by ignoring it, by distorting it, by adding to it, you are playing games with the holy God of the word. And you will not escape his searching eye on the day of judgment. God's revelation is complete. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life, and godliness through our knowledge of Jesus, who has called us to his own glory and excellence. He's given us everything we need. It's complete. So with those two bookends in place, I want to 
in the final place, spend the rest of our time considering that God's revelation demands a response. And that's really in the middle section, verses 7 to to 17. This is the main chunk of the chapter, and and we could have easily spent a a couple of weeks uh, in this chapter, but in order for us to finish the series today, I'm going to just give you a couple of key application points or or key response points that come out uh, of this chapter with regards to the whole book of Revelation, and maybe you can uh, explore that more in your own study of God's Word. And so I think there's at least five ways in which we see in this chapter that God's revelation demands a response. And the first one is obedience in verse 7. Verse 7 records the words of Jesus himself here at the end of John's vision. Jesus says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. We'll come back to the the first part of that verse, but Jesus here wants John to know that his revelation demands our obedience. The word keep, keep here, has as its main meaning obedience, conforming our lives to the truths that are revealed. That's what it means to keep the words of this prophecy. Jesus said in John 14 verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't mean you'll keep them on a shelf and, and smile at them every day. No, he means you will do them, you'll obey them, you'll transform your life according to them. That's what it means to keep his commands. And so we see that there is great blessing for those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. One commentator says to keep God's word is to firstly receive it in faith, hold fast to it in hope, and then to obey it in action. Receive it, hold fast to it, obey it. And what is the blessing promised to those who keep it? Well, coming at the end of the book of Revelation, it's, it's everything that Jesus has promised to his people throughout the book. Protection, encouragement, deliverance, provision, and ultimately the promise of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. Let me just remind you of some of the promises that Jesus gave to his people in this book. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will receive hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on it. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works till the end, I will give him authority over the nations. To the one who conquers, I will clothe him in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I sit with my father on his throne. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. All of the promised blessings of God's revelation to us in this book belong only to those who conquer who who keep the words of the prophecy of this book, who firstly receive it by faith, who obey the call of the gospel. You put your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. And then you hold on to his word in hope and you obey it in faith. So obedience is the first response Uh, to this revelation. Secondly, we see that God's revelation demands our worship in verse eight and nine. Now, this truth is revealed in a rather strange way. Let's just read these verses together. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, the revelation of God is meant to invoke the worship of God. But it seems that John fell prey to what is all too common a problem in our day. John here was so overwhelmed by the vision of God that he, that he saw through the angel that he misplaced his focus on the messenger instead of on the God to whom the messenger pointed. 
Now let's not be too quick to judge John here for this terrible mistake. Because at least in John's case, the the messenger was a sinless angel, an impressive, shiny, spiritual being who, who dwells in the very presence of God. The message which he revealed to John was so awe-filled, it was so awe-inspiring that for a brief moment, John misplaced his worship towards the angel instead of to God. But this is something all too common in our day, is it not? The worship of celebrity pastors, charismatic leaders, prosperity preachers, who are so skilled at whisking up a following and they do so with just the right amount of of biblical language that they stir the hearts of their hearers with the things of God, all the while ensuring that our hearts are, are impressed by the messenger instead of by the God of the message. But let's not just think of those out there, I would argue that this touches even much closer to home. Who of you decide if you are coming to church or not based on who is preaching that Sunday? Based on who is leading the worship that Sunday? Or based on which series we are working through that Sunday? Some of you even phone the church office to find out. Well, if that's you, then you reveal a misplaced focus on men. A misplaced focus on the messenger. Instead of seeing that each preacher who stands in this pulpit is simply a messenger whose job it is to point you to God instead of seeing that every worship team is there to to be a mediator to point you to worship God. Listen to how clearly the angel puts it to John. He says in verse nine, get up, get up, he says. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. In other words, I'm a servant with Isaiah, I'm a servant with Hosea, I'm a servant with Paul and with Peter, I'm a servant alongside John Calvin and John Piper, I'm a servant alongside those, he says, who keep the words of this book. I'm a servant alongside the saints at Honeyridge Baptist Church who are faithful to God, so don't worship me, worship God. Has our time in Revelation over this past year caused you to worship God more? If you only come to church when I preach through Revelation, or for some of you, if you only come to church when I'm not preaching, either way, you've made too much of man. Either way, you are worshiping the messenger or you're worshiping yourself. And both would invoke the rebuke of John's angel. Don't do it. Don't do it. Worship God. The third response which God's revelation demands is that of faith in verses 10 to 15. It's probably more in these verses, but I think the summary of these verses uh, is to show the contrast between those who are evil and those who are holy. Let's just read those verses. And he said to me, verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now verse 10 is interesting because it's different to the words of God to Daniel. Uh, A lot of revelation is based on Daniel, but in Daniel 8 and Daniel 12, God said to Daniel, 
The things in this vision are in the distant future, and so you must seal up the words of this vision. Don't reveal them. But here the angel tells John, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. In other words, the words of this revelation are for this generation. They must hear and they must respond. Now all the world will respond in one of two ways. The evil will continue to be evil and the righteous will continue to be righteous. Verse 11 is is difficult to understand, but I think it's referring to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit. Sorry, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The point here in verse 12 is that Jesus is coming soon to judge. That's what recompense is. It's it's primarily used negatively in terms of judgment. He will come to judge each person according to how we have lived, according to the fruit of our lives. Because how we live reveals who we are. The wicked will continue to do wickedness. The filthy who live in moral corruption continue to do that. But there are righteous who do good, who despite living in this broken world, continue to be holy. And here is where the revelation of God demands faith. Faith in Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world Because look at verse 14. Verse 14 says that it is only those who have washed their robes. And we know from previous references to that terminology, it's referring to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Who've had our sins cleansed. It is only we who have been washed by His blood who have the right to enter into that heavenly city and to eat from the tree of life. It's only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that this eternal destiny is secured. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. What about the rest? What about those who've tried to get to heaven through religion, through morality, through a good life, but failed miserably? What about those who've abandoned all things spiritual and run amuck in their lives of rebellion? Well, they are in verse 15. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Maybe before you sit too comfortably with verse 15, uh, thinking that you are okay because you are not a sorcerer or you are not sexually immoral or you're not a murderer, let me remind you that anyone who has not trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation, you are indeed still an idolater. You worship yourself and someone who loves and practices falsehood. Remember that falsehood, particularly in the context of Revelation, is the native language of Satan. Some of you sitting here today are spiritual hypocrites, spiritual falsehood. You you pretend outwardly to be a Christian on a Sunday and at youth group on Fridays and wherever it is that you're in Christian circles, but you actually worship daily at the idol of your sinful pleasures and your willful disobedience. You know what God's word says about stealing, about lying, about being unequally yoked, about sexual purity, about porneia, about generosity, about drugs and drunkenness, about the snare of riches, about arrogance and self-control about forgiveness and racism. You know these things, but you continue to practice idolatry. You are enslaved to these things, 
and yet you hide behind the veneer of outward Christian respectability. Jesus said, as we were reminded last Sunday night, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something far greater than Jonah is here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. In the fourth place, we see that God's revelation uh, demands our satisfaction. In verse 16 and 17, I'm almost done. Verse 16 reminds us through the words of Jesus himself that the whole purpose for the book of Revelation is for the benefit of the churches, for the benefit of the people of God that we might desire Jesus more and more. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. All the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah find their fulfillment in Jesus. He is the bright morning star. He's the one who shines brightly in the midst of the dark night sky to usher in a brand new day. And the only proper response, the only right response to that vision of Jesus Christ as we've had revealed to us in Revelation is one of complete satisfaction and delight. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Do you live as a Christian in this life, as, as Shane shared this morning, with, with even a small foretaste of satisfaction in Jesus? Have our studies in the book of Revelation developed an increasing desire in your heart which cries out, come? Can you say with David in Psalm 42, not just read Psalm 42, can you cry out with David as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? Psalm 143, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. How satisfied are you in Jesus? It's not a comfortable question, is it? Even now, how satisfied are you in Jesus? Do you have a deep growing and longing and eternal thirst that your soul would be quenched in his presence in heaven? Listen to John Piper on this, and I could never say it as passionately as he does, um, but here goes. This is John Piper. Virtually everything I think about, every sermon I give, every counseling session I have, every visitation to the hospital I make, I have one main goal, says Piper. I want to awaken affections for God and satisfy them with God. That's the way I see everything in the world. I don't mainly think about ideas, although I am an idea guy. Ideas, he says, are like cooking, not eating. Ideas are like digging wells, not drinking. I'm ultimately after drinking, not thinking. Thinking is the workhorse that takes me to the spring, but I'm born to drink. I want to be happy forever, nothing small. I want big, deep, long, strong, unshakable joy. The whole world wants it. They don't know that they're dribbling their lives away on a thousand things that cannot satisfy. End quote. Think about your life today. Don't think about the fact that I'm late for coffee. What is it that you thirst for? 
every source of satisfaction you pursue, even things which may be good and in and of themselves, they will never satisfy. No matter how much of this world, young people hear me, no matter how much of this world you drink in, pleasure, sport, things, cars, beauty, relationships, children, luxuries, power, influence, it's all like drinking seawater. No matter how much you drink it, it only serves to dehydrate you until the very last sip ends up killing you. Listen to God in Jeremiah 2. Be appalled at this, O heavens. Be shocked and utterly dismayed. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and then they've dug for themselves empty wells, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Instead, Jesus says, I am the living water. Anyone, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone drinks of this earthly water, we'll be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. That water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. My dear brothers and sisters here at Honeyridge, young people, young adults, dads, moms, singles, middle-aged, old, what are you drinking? Where do you look for satisfaction? Can you say with the psalmist, I will see your face in righteousness when I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence? Then finally today, the last thing which God's revelation demands is our expectation. We see that in verse 7, 12, 16, and 17, and 20. As, as Jesus wraps up his revelation to the seven churches, he concludes with three times in this chapter saying, Behold, I am coming soon. And three times his people respond and say, Come, come, amen, come, Lord Jesus. There is only one more event left on the calendar of God's plan in history, and it is the soon return of Jesus. That's the next big event. And we are meant to live every day of our lives in great expectation of that awesome day. Nothing on this earth should distract our hearts from crying out, come, come Lord Jesus. So let me ask you this, if you knew that Jesus would be coming next week, or let's give, it, let's give it a bit more time, if you knew that Jesus would be coming in exactly three months' time, what things would you rush out from here today and wish that you could accomplish before he came? Would it be to quickly get married, have children? Three months, not enough for that. <laughs> Enjoy your grandchildren, buy a fancy car, travel to an exotic island, climb Mount Kilimanjaro, put in that new granite kitchen with all your savings and smeg appliances. Break your record marathon time. Clinch that massive deal that you've been working on for months. If you have anything anything on your list that you first want to do before Jesus returns, I would suggest that you really do not know Jesus. You really do not grasp his beauty and his glory. You have not begun to appreciate what the satisfaction of your soul really means because perhaps you are still too busy drinking seawater. Maybe there is one legitimate reason to hope that Jesus will delay, and that is the only reason he has delayed this long, and that is so that those who are not yet satisfied in Jesus will come to him and drink, that those who desire him will drink deeply of the water of life without price. Maybe Jesus delayed so long because if he had come yesterday, you would have been found spiritually dehydrated 
at the many fountains of earthly seawater. Maybe Jesus delays a little bit longer because your children and your spouse and your friends at school are still drinking seawater. And if he came today, they would be handed the cup of God's wrath to drink for all eternity. Jesus is telling us today, I'm coming soon. Can you truly respond this morning? Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. If you can, then the final words of this book are for you. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you until he comes and forevermore. Amen. Grant and the team I've gone over this morning, so we're going to just not sing the closing hymn this morning. Uh, We'll do so at the second service. Can I invite you all back to come and sing the closing hymn at the second service today? Let me just close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is trustworthy and true, that it is complete. May we here today embrace it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we obey it. May we live it. May we grow in in desire to be satisfied by you both now and for all eternity. And may you give us this unquenchable expectation for you to return. Even so we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.